Okay. Let's begin by taking a moment to pay homage to the great master, to he who is excellent, infinitely virtuous, magnificent, unblemished, unfathomable in wisdom, virtue, and concentration. He who is the fount of compassion. As we do so, let us also remind ourselves that this is also us reaffirming our pledge to ourselves, reminding ourselves that we are here with purpose. We have a task to do. We have an ambition to fulfill. So mindful of all of this, let's bring our hands together to chant the Namaskar and pay homage to the Supreme Buddha. Namo tasse bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhasse Namo tasse bhagavato arhato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arhato Samma Sambuddhasa There's a good reason why I always take a moment to remind you that the Namaskara is more than just us paying veneration and making worship to the Buddha. Because we've always grown up right from our very young ages wanting to impress someone. As young children we wanted to impress our parents and we loved, we thrived in the recognition that we got out of it harmless, but nonetheless. We wanted to impress our friends, we wanted to impress our teachers, we wanted to impress our neighbors. Are you still in that business? Hope not. And then, on one occasion, it might even have occurred to you, shouldn't we impress the Buddha? Because there are some people who go about impressing. Their teachers or spiritual leaders or maybe even deities gods, because they believe that if we make a good impression, then we will be in their favor. If we can please them, then perhaps 
they will look after us. And so, to impress, you got to be looking your best. You got to be doing the right thing at the right time in front of their eyes. So then it doesn't really matter what you're doing in their absence, but what matters most is what you do in their presence, right? Think about how you wanted to impress your parents and maybe your friends. And then you were in your best conduct. When? Yes, in their presence. Things that you would have done, things that you might have said in their absence, you didn't dare say in front of them. Because you were very careful about the impression that you were making on them. Have you seen people, and you know, everyone does it, nothing essentially wrong with it. I'm just, I'm just trying to prove a point here. You've seen how in the presence of someone who can make a difference, can call the shots, can perhaps make an impact on people's lives, you'll observe, and you may have observed, that people sometimes behave like a different species altogether. They behave very differently. They might say that this is us showing respect, this is us showing regard. And I agree that that might be what it is. But at the same time, there's an undertone of wanting to make a good impression. When you have visitors around, there's a way you behave at home. When you're at the workplace, there are things that you wouldn't do that you might do at home amongst your closest. And of course, vice versa. So making an impression is a big thing for people. When people begin to think that this namaskar is a veneration to the Buddha. It might come across as something that we do to impress the Buddha. Now, sometimes they may behave in a certain way in the presence of a Buddha, in the presence of a monk, in the presence of a teacher, but perhaps in a very different way in their absence. So this is why I remind you that this is more than just a veneration to the Buddha, but rather it is a pledge. It is an affirmation of your resolve to fulfill your goal. Because 
when you always have purpose, now it doesn't matter who's watching. Does it? It doesn't matter who's watching now. Because if you have somewhere to go, and if you want to get there, and you want to be there as soon as possible, and you have to make steps in the right direction to move you forward, does it matter who's watching? Are you going to move faster when they're watching and then take a breath, take a deep breath, take a, you know, just relax and become lackadaisical when they're not? No, but you would do if what you wanted to do was not actually arrive at your destination, but rather make a good impression on whoever it is you wanted to impress. But you see, when we remind ourselves our purpose of being here, now it doesn't matter whether the Buddha is here or not. Then it doesn't matter whether the Swami Nuhansa is here or not. It doesn't matter who's around you. It doesn't matter whether the Devas are watching or not. It doesn't matter whether your spouse knows what you're doing or not. It doesn't matter whether your best friend knows what you're doing or not. It doesn't matter whether your parents know it or not. It doesn't matter whether the police or the law enforcement agencies know what you're doing or not. It doesn't matter who knows because someone else does. Someone always does. And who is that? You do. You always know. And you have to live with that conscience. But that's besides the point. My po point is, if we all have purpose, and if we have a destination that we want to arrive at, and we want to get there as soon as we can, the question is not who's watching. You know, it's like in the, in the Olympics, it's very important who's watching. Because it's they who decide whether you cross the finish line before someone else. So there's a camera, and there's a, so there's a, there's a rolling camera, and it keeps in sync with the, the runners. So it's very important that they watch. Imagine you are in the Olympics, right? You've been training for so many years, and you're running the 100 meters, and three seconds before you and the rest of them arrive at the finish line, there's a power cut. Hmm? And they have no backup. It would be worse if it were a marathon, wouldn't it? Because now, if they're watching, if they, if they weren't watching, then you wouldn't be recognized as first, second, or third. You won't be standing on that pedestal. But what about when you're training for the Olympics? When you're training for the Olympics, now it doesn't matter who's watching. Because now, you're actually training against yourself. You find out what was my best time, my best lap time, and then you try to keep beating that. You find out who's the fastest, and then you try and beat that. You try and beat your competition, but your competition doesn't have to be there. 
and neither do the observers. The truth is, although it is that final race at the Olympics that gets you the medal, that is only the last piece of the puzzle. It's all that hard work and deliberation leading up to it that won you the medal. This is why last week or the week before, I reminded you, inspiration and motivation can only get you so far. It is ultimately your determination and your discipline that will get you to your destination. And when discipline is concerned, or where discipline is concerned, it matters not who's watching, because that is what discipline is. Discipline, I see discipline as what you do, who you are, when no one's watching. Are you disciplined? It's a very good question to ask ourselves. Who are you when no one's watching? Now this is a very personal question and not one I want you to share your answers. Certainly not here and certainly not with me. <laughs> Who are you when no one's watching? Take a moment to think about this. When your parents don't know what you're up to, when your husband doesn't know what you're up to, when your wife doesn't know what you're up to, and if you're a student, when your teacher doesn't know what you're up to, when the Buddha doesn't know what you're up to, who are you then? That is the real you. That is the real you. That is the guy we need to try and get to Nibban. Perhaps that's not you on a Saturday morning. This is reflection time. So put on those thinking hats, reflection hats, and do knock knock right here. Hmm. Who's there? Me. Me who? Me when no one's watching. Who are you when no one's watching? If I were to ask you to come up on the stage and give a speech, not about myself, oh, you've done that so many times. Hmm? Myself speeches, we do it every day. We grew up doing them. No, but here's the title of that speech. Myself, yes? Huh? What? When? No one's watching. Hmm. Shall I give you five minutes each? Sorry, not enough time, so I'm in answer. <laughs> That's the guy we need to get to Nibbana. 
That's the person we need to get to Nibbana. Because that's the real you. It, it's, it may not be who arrives on a Saturday morning or even leaves here on a Saturday evening. Because on a Saturday, you are somebody else. And that's okay because your environment, you know, this is the nature that nurtures you, right? But who are you in your natural environment? Your natural environment is the environment in, in which you are, not the artificial environment. This is a very artificial environment. Very. I'm asking about who am I when you're not here. Isn't that the true test of whether I'm a monk or not? Hmm? Am I the same person I am when you're not here, sir? When you're not here, madam? Or are you only seeing one side of me? What about the other side? Is there another side? A side that nobody knows? But doesn't anyone know? Someone knows. Oh, yes. You see, there's no such thing as a secret in this world because someone always knows. Nothing is top secret. Someone always knows. You know, if you want to make a good impression, the person you ought to be making a really good impression on is not the Buddha. It's not the Swami Nuhansi, it's not the teacher, it's not your husband or your wife or your best friend or your neighbors. Make a damn good impression on yourself. That's who you need to make a good impression on. See if you're impressed with who you are. Because you know who you are, plain and square. See if you can make a good impression on yourself. Because dressing up, putting on that makeup, metaphorically speaking, pretending to be someone you're not, are all things you can do in front of others, and uh, trust me, they will be fooled. Don't they? Yes. They will be and they are fooled. So doing, making that impression on others is an utterly useless task. You can do it because it is socially what is expected of you, right? So you wouldn't walk out the way you woke up. You'll have to trimp yourself up, dress up, smarten yourself up, all that. Right? And there'll be things that you should not be saying, should not be doing in the presence of others. But what about who you are when no one's watching? Take a few moments. I'll ask you this question and see if you can give yourself an honest answer. Okay?
you can lift your virtual left arm if the answer to this is no. You can lift your virtual right arm if the answer to this is yes. And as it's virtual, I'm not going to see it. Okay? Right. So virtual left arm for if the answer is no. Virtual right arm if the answer is yes. Fair enough? Okay. So virtual, okay? Please. Got that? Yeah? Virtual hmm? with a capital V. <laughs> right? So here's the question. Are you impressed with who you are? Raise your virtual arm. Do you like who you are? Do you want your children to be someone like you? I'm asking about the real person, not the person your neighbors know. Not the person your friends, not even your best friend knows. Do you want your children to grow up to be someone like you? Would you trust someone like you with anything, absolutely anything? If you weren't yourself, would you mind being left alone in a dark room with someone like yourself? Would you believe every word you say? Would you? Are you impressed by who you are? Right, you can put down your virtual arm. Sorry, I forgot. <laughs> Suppose it was beginning to hurt you. It does hurt when the left arm goes up and stays up a lot. So here's the deal. It's okay that it was the left arm for some of you. Correct that sentence? Sorry, sorry I'll stop. <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. The point I'm trying to get across here is that's the person you need to take to Nibbana. That's the person you need to tame. So let's all come to terms with that, first of all. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa is a pledge for that person. That is an oath that that person takes. At least it ought to be. Because this person doesn't need it. You're already samma sambuddhas, aren't you? Look like it. But that person, they've got some work to do, haven't they? They've got their work cut out for them. So these talks, these sermons, whatever you want to call it, the guidance you get from here, hmm, all of that 
is to help that person. So make sure that when you come in here, when you come to the monastery, and you're not Saturday Nibbana people, are you? Hopefully not. We only sell Nibbana on Saturdays. It's like the Sunday fair. <laughs> we have the Saturday fair in which we sell Nibbana. Buy two, get one free. So, when you and your wife comes, please bring your child along with you. <laughs> so, you, you shouldn't be Saturday Nibbana people because Saturday is not the only day that you are the real you. Because you are the real you every day of the week, every hour, every minute, every second, right? Every waking moment, that's the person that you need to take to Nibbana. Now, I'm going to ask you a second question. This project that you have, what's the project that you have? Taking that guy, that guy, not this guy, taking that guy to Nibbana, right? So you have, it's a project, so it has to be done within a limited period of time. You can't take forever and ever and ever to, be, to do it, okay? How big of a project do you think it is? How does it feel? Is it a behemoth of a task? Is it like trying to put down a mammoth? How, how do you feel about it? Hmm. <laughs> But that's okay. You know, whatever the answers are to these questions, they're rhetoric questions at the end of the day, right? I'm not expecting you to give me any answers, but I want you to be thinking of the answers. I want those answers to sprout up in your mind and I want you to recognize what those answers are. Because, you know, when you're, when no one's, when no one's hearing, when no one's listening to what you have to say, that's usually when you're very honest. How, what do you mean? Hmm. <clears throat> I'll answer that, okay? Your most honest when no one's listening to what you have to say. That's when you're most honest. Because when someone's listening to what you have to say, now you filter. You look at their face, you read their emotions, you read their facial features, you see, you read their eyebrows, you read their lips, you see whether it's a smile or a smile turned upside down. And then, depending on that, you know, you attenuate the words that come out of your mouth. And sometimes they may not be exactly how you feel on the inside. But, like when you're singing in the shower, hmm? no one's listening, right? Hopefully. Unless you receive complaints from your neighbors. <laughs> hmm? So, you know, then you, you just sing your heart out. If I ask you to go and make a confession, because that's what they do, like in the, in the, in the church, you, people go and make, make confessions, and they feel that they're actually making a confession with God. 
that's how people feel of course it's not god in the in the next chamber but it's it's the father in the church but people have this confidence that whatever is said will remain within those four walls and nothing's going to go out so then those confessions start start flooding now it might even be that even those confessions are not entirely honest sometimes you know you might feel a little bit reserved or hesitant because you know there's someone else on the other side what if just what if hmm? what if they saw me come in and they know who i am they recognize the voice and so on but imagine you went somewhere into a thick forest maybe or up into onto a mountain and there's no one around it's just you know you and nobody else just nature and you were given the opportunity to speak out and say who you really are just you know put it all out just get it all out get it all out of your system just vomit it all out in that occasion you might be saying things but that you might never have uttered in the presence of somebody else see all these things that you have to say someone else you think they are secrets but they're not really secrets because you always know so there's not never such a thing as a secret this is what called being being genuine is when what you get on the outside is what you are on the inside so the way i see it only an arahant is a really genuine person this is only my take on it right so you can agree to disagree but the way i see it only an arahant is a purely genuine person because what you see is what you get what you see is what you get because they don't they don't capture they don't retain they don't distort they don't warp what goes in goes out and if you get a moment to talk about what i promised to talk about last week this week merits and so on and how how you can make use of the sambuddha sasana to earn yourself lots of merit then we'll touch on this point as well because an arahant is a state of mind where what you put in is what you get out that is not to say that an arahant doesn't filter depending on the environment depending on who's out there that's not to say that but i think the best example i can give you is this yesterday one of my students he came and he was talking with me and he said i feel so this is in his words he says i feel that as my teacher there should be nothing about me that you don't know i said okay carry on so he said i want to have that kind of relationship where everything and anything that has happened to me that is happening to me you need to know about it and i said okay so then he said i've got a few things i want to get off my chest i said oh 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 right so we've only got one and a half hours 
So I said, right, let me offer you something instead. I said, imagine you had a file, right? And a file in which you had lots of paper, sheets of paper. There you had a hundred sheets of paper and you had a file. This is all about you. <clears throat> now, if you walk in here and I asked you at random, uh, can I have a look at sheet 26, please? I, actually, no, give me 27. At that point, you should be able to go, yep, sure, here you go. And then I say, okay, I would also like to have a look at sheet number 86. Yep, here you go. How about 13? Here you go. And um, let me see, 92. Here you go. I said, that is what I expect from you. I don't expect you to come here and open your file and lay out all those sheets of paper in front of me and then expect me to read all of them uh, in, my, in my time, read all of them and then give you my take on it or mark all of them. That's not what I expect from you. But I expect of you to be able to present your work to me. Whichever one I ask for without any hesitation. That is what I expect. That is the openness that I expect. Do you understand the difference? It's not about coming in front of me and telling me everything you've done from the morning to, you know, right when you go to bed. That's not what I want. But you should be willing, prepared to do so on demand. That kind of person is a genuine person. On demand, they're willing, free, they feel free, they're, they're willing to present whatever they have. This is me, this is me. Do you, which side do you want to have a look at? This side, that side, top side, bottom side, which side? Back side, front side? Yeah, there you go, this is me. So no secrets. I'm willing to show you and present to you anything that you ask me. But that's, that doesn't mean you go around showing everything you've got. So you understand the difference? Right. I want each and every one of you to ask yourself the question, if you were a file and the things that you do in your life were the sheets in that file, the papers in that file, if I or whoever you might consider your teacher asks you, can I see sheet number does your heart start pounding? Oh, no, not that one, not that one, not that one. Okay, you can ask for that one, not that one. <laughs> and if I ask for 26, do you still say, uh, oh, 26 missing, so I'm not, I'll give you 25 instead. I've also got 27. You know, it's just one less, one more. Right? That's the question you need to be asking yourself. This is the test of genuineness. So the gentleman asked earlier, you know, what if you're fooled? You think you're good. Huh? So you had your right arm up, perhaps. But if you're fooled, so that's a good way to find out. In the presence of a teacher, or when the situation demands it of you, are you, present, are you available, are you able to present Whoever, you are entirely and categorically, this is who I am. 
Or are there bits that you hesitate? So again, I, I tell you, this is not about walking around showing everyone everything you've got. That's not what it is. Yeah. There were occasions. Now, even in the, in the discipline, the Buddha says that we have to conduct ourselves in a certain way when we are in the presence of the laity. And we have to conduct ourselves in a certain way where, when we are in the presence of fellow monks. Right? Those are, there's a difference. And for any of you who flick through those pages, you will understand that there are these, this is the code of discipline. So that's, that's fair enough. But that's not because... And this applies even to Arahants. The most genuine people that you can think of. But that's not because they have something inside that they harbor and that is very different to what they might be willing to show you. But instead, it's because that is the social norm. And it is also done in the best interest of the people that they come across. That is what it is about. So I digress. I'm going to come back to what I, was, what I want to talk to you about. The, the true test of how close you are to Nibbana is do you make a good impression on yourself? You know, let's be honest, right? Throughout our lives, we've always learned, and that is what the people, that is what people who we've come across have always taught us to do, make a good impression on others. You know, how to win friends and influence people. These are the books that we read growing up. How to win friends. So to win a friend, you've got to make a good impression on, on them. How to influence others. And to influence others, you've got to be able to make a good impression on them. How to get that job, how to perform well at a job interview. Hmm? To do that, you've got to make a good impression on others. To find the, you know, your life's partner. How do you find a good partner? There are books and written, volumes of books written on this kind of stuff. Again, you've got to make a good impression on others. And when the elections are near, hmm? what do you see people doing a lot? Making a good impression on others. Now, it's what you see every day, all day, all night long. But are they really impressed by who they are? Of course, we can't speak on behalf of them, but we can all speak on behalf of ourselves. Hmm? If you, if you know, <laughs> let's imagine I was able to do a... Um, was it Dolly, the clone sheep? Dolly? Molly? Huh? Dolly. Thank you. So imagine we did a dolly on you. Just imagine we did a dolly on you. What, does that, what do I mean by that? We cloned you. Right? So looks the same, thinks the same, knows everything about you. Okay? But they speak freely. They speak freely. Now you can't you can't uh, control what they say. They will speak freely and they are their own individual being. Okay. Now, say they're in this room. Now, we've, all, we've done a, 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 a dolly on you and they're all stood outside. And you know, they're very talkative as, as well. Unlike you, they're very talkative. So whatever comes to their mind, they just speak out, speak out loud. Right? Okay, time for that virtual hand, a virtual arm going up again. Hmm? I'm going to ask them to come in here one by one. And all day long, all they do is just jabber, 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 all the things that just come to their mind. Now you stand them in front of a restaurant, they'll just say whatever comes to their mind. 
you take them and stand them in front of the TV, they'll say whatever that comes to their mind. You take them and stand them in front of a, a, a girl, they'll say whatever comes to their mind, right? So I'm, they stood outside. Tell us, Amin. Your dolly. Huh? Oh, you're already thinking, where are they? Let me add them. This room ain't big enough for the two of us. Right, you know, the truth is, right? Everyone's got secrets. But they're not really secrets because you know them. The only thing I'm asking you to do here, first, be okay with that. Okay, so it's, I'm not trying to unsettle you. I'm not trying to say, God, look at you. You know, you people are just disgraceful. You're terrible people. How dare you? Look at all those secrets that you have uh, and all the people that you pretend to be in front of others. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying, first, let's acknowledge that that's the person that we need to guide to Nibbana. That's the person you really need to make an impression on. So, I can't ask you to stop making an impression on others because when we live among other people, we have to do it. It's not a choice that we have, we have to do it. But there's one person that is most important of all on whom you ought to make the best impression. It's you and yourself. Make sure that you make a damn good impression on yourself. You, when no one's watching. You, when no one knows what you're up to. That's what matters. If you don't like that person, don't expect anyone else to. If you don't like that guy, if you don't like who you are when no one's watching, right? if you don't like the things that he or she does, if you don't like the things that he or she says, or the, particularly the things that he or she thinks, don't expect anyone else to. You know, it is said that devas, they can read minds, and even uh, demigods, or like the spiritual, these creatures, not spiritual, but... Uh, like the Praetors, we said that they can, they can read minds, right? But human beings, you and I, very seldom people have that ability. This is all hearsay. I mean, I've never experienced it, but it is said that there are some people who can, can read minds, you know, telepathy. And, but it is also said that the Devas, you know, they can read you from, from a distance because they can see your aura. So, so when you're, when you're, radiating a certain kind of aura, they know what you're thinking. So apparently there's a color for when you're feeling desirous. There's a color for when you're feeling, when you're full of aversion, full of anger. And there's a color when you're full of delusion. And then there's a color apparently, so there isn't really a color, but there's a representation in the, the, the visual world. Apparently there's, there's an aura which you give off, which you emanate when you're you know, free of desire, aversion, and delusion. So that is what, this is what they say, you know, the Buddha's aura reaches 10,000 world systems. Now, you, 
there are people or there are beings who know then what you think but just not the people that you live with and even if none of them existed there's still you who knows what you think that's the person we need to take to nibbana that is whom on whose behalf you took that oath in the morning namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa it's on his behalf it's on her behalf so the most important thing what i want to get across in this part of the talk what i've talked to you so far is first of all acknowledge that okay accept right okay now i understand it's not this it's that guy that i need to help that's the project not this is not this this is not the project that's the project secondly once you've acknowledged that be at peace because everyone has this that's not why you should be at peace but if you are very unsettled with that person if you are very angsty with that person if you don't like this person if you feel like you know i'd rather go hang myself than be this person and always think about who this person is right then again nibbana is a long way off for you the first thing you need to be able to do is what a doctor would do with their patient first they acknowledge the patient and second they are okay with the patient they're okay with the patient right so whatever complaints you have dear patient i'm okay with that i'm here to look after you it's fine that's my job if there's nothing wrong with you then you wouldn't need me in the same way you should be speaking to yourselves and telling them telling him or her if there was nothing wrong with you right then you wouldn't need me you know in the in the dhamma the buddha says right love all beings as a mother would love her only child where do you think that should start of course it should start there love yourself like a mother loves her only child love yourself what is what do i mean by love yourself what i mean is accept your flaws but for that you have to acknowledge who you really are If you don't acknowledge who you really are, you're already not accepting your flaws. You don't like the, you don't like to see those flaws. So therefore, if you don't like to see them, you're not going to address them. That's like a uh, you know, when a patient goes to a doctor and the patient starts complaining about this and that and this and that and the patient says, "Don't don't tell me about those things. I don't like those diseases. I don't like those ailments. Just tell me about this stuff." You know, that patient's not going to get a lot of help from the doctor. Life is a project, folks. it's a project life is a project of taking that guy which guy myself when no one's watching life is the project of taking that guy to nibbana that is what life is taking that guy to nibbana we might all have defined life in very many different ways life is this life is that what is life what is existence what is all this that and the other the way i see it today life is a project you have all been so fortunate to come across the sambuddha sasana which helps you and guides you to take that guy to nibbana 
But first, you need to identify and recognize that guy, who that guy is. And if you've identified that guy, now be compassionate towards them. That loving kindness that you emanate from your heart, that should reach them more than, oh, before it reaches anybody else. So you should be okay with your flaws. Now, on some occasions, you know, we do these confession sessions with uh, people, right? And when, just imagine you doing the confession session. Now, you're, you're taking someone's confession, right? Someone coming up to you and they're just divulging everything they've done in their life. Right? I've done this, I've done that. Oh God, all the horrible things I've done. And sometimes, you know, they, they stutter, they stammer, they, they just can't get it out of their system. But, you know, you keep on trying to ease it out of them and eventually they, they, they come across and they, they give you what they've done, right? What is your response usually? You know, if, if a best friend were to come up to you and, you know, say, I want, you know, something's really bothering me. It's something I did when I was 15 years old and now I'm 35 and it's just really weighing me down and I just want to get it off my chest, right? What would you normally say? Yeah, come on, just, just let it out. Tell me, tell me. It's all right. It's all right. Whatever it is, I'm okay. I'm here for you, right? You'd, you'd say that, wouldn't you? And then if you say something and, you know, it's like it's one of the worst things that anyone has ever done, right? Now you'd still say, hey, it's all right. You got it off your chest, right? I'm here for you. That is what friendship is, right? That is what metta is. That is what loving kindness is. So if you can do it for a friend, <laughs> You know what I'm going to say next? The things that people do for their friends, they struggle to do half of that for themselves. People are so patient, so, so willing to lend an ear, so, so willing to hold a hand and listen to everything that they say for a friend. But... And, and, and if, if they struggle, then you'll try and get it out of them. Come on, it's all right, it's all right, I'm here, I'm here. Let's, let's take that next step. You know, tell me what you've got. Tell me what's bothering you. But when something happens to you and you, it starts bothering you, right? You go into denial mode. No, 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 that didn't happen to me because I just wanted to think about it. That didn't happen to me. Denial is not just a river in Egypt. It, it hurts you. You can't address the problem until and unless you acknowledge it. That's why if you're going to take one thing from today's talk, folks, the one thing I want you to take from today is identify the real person that you're trying to heal, help, take to Nibbana. And who's that person? You, when no one's watching. First identify them and then acknowledge them. Once you've acknowledged them, the next thing I want you to do is show them your loving kindness. Give them your compassion. Be gentle. Tell them a hundred million times, it's okay. It's all right. It's okay, I'm here for you. Don't torture them. Don't suffocate them. I say them because he slash she, okay? Don't hurt them. Because that's who's there for you. That's all there is. 
he or she is the only person that you have, that is your project. If you kill that guy, then you know, that's the end of your project. What is the point of you being here? What you're doing right now is learning how to tame that dragon. I'm giving you help to do that. What do you think I'm doing? Something different? Hmm? You think I'm doing one thing and asking you to do something else? No, I'm doing the same. What does everyone do? Everyone does that. What do you think the Bodhisattva did? Exactly that. You know, it is said like, right, those few moments before he attained his Buddhahood, right, all sorts of images started to appear in his mind, not in his mind, they say, you know, like the Tanha, Rati, Raga, and you know, all these people appeared in front of him, trying to lure him, right, through sensual desires and all sorts, right? Now, that may be true. The way I read it is, you know, he is now battling with the defilements in his mind. That's the way I read it. All those nooks and corners in his mind, you know, those deep, dark corners that were never touched earlier, that lay dormant. All those defilements that lay dormant, it's time to now flood them all out. Because, you know, we are just about to get, get a Buddha. Awakening. Enlightenment. So for there to be light, there can't be any darkness. So those few moments, right? And you know, it is in the in the scriptures. It just says, you know, the last few moments. But that's what he was been he's been doing all his life, right? From when he determined I want to become a bodhisattva, you know, right from that point, his quest was always identifying who I am, the real me, acknowledging them, and them trying to show loving kindness, compassion. An abundance of that towards that. That is how I, you know, an arahant is born. That is how an arahant is born when they have learned to love themselves properly. So, who's an arahant, if you ask me? It's someone who really le has learned to love themselves. That is an arahant. Now, this will sound quite the contrary to some of the things that I've said in the past. I, I would have said, you know, don't stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about others. You know, altruistic love is what we're after. So you might think, oh, whoa, whoa, what's going on? Oh, hang on. You know, did you get out of the wrong bed today? <laughs> or wrong side of the bed this morning? What happened? What are you talking about yourself? You know, I thought we were about others and not about the self. The thing is, it's one and the same. If you understand really what I'm trying to get across to you here, it's one and the same. In the Arimaitriya, we say, may I and all beings in all worlds, right? To an Arahant, I and all beings in all worlds are on the same level. To an Arahant, the I is in front of everyone else. Right? The I comes first and then everybody else comes. But what the Arahant does, what the, the, the Arahant state of mind is, everyone's the same. It has never been that others have, others have taken a, a, a more important or a more primary role than, than the self. Because for anyone who has a self, whatever they do is to satisfy the self to more or less a degree. You can't completely ignore the self and, and do things for others. It's not technically possible. 
although we might like to dress it up in those words. It's not technically possible. So we can start talking about the merit and how that works. Right? As soon as I've, uh, this point is clear to you. So who's an arahant? An arahant is someone who has learned to love himself. That is why an arahant, you know, they put their masks on first before they put on someone else's. The bodhisattva becomes a Buddha first, and then he teaches others how to become Buddhas. So he who loves, he who he loves first, he helps first. So who do you think the bodhisattva loved most? Himself, of course. And who do you, who should you love, above all? Yourselves. Huh? <laughs> what are you going on about, son? <laughs> if you are intelligent enough and you you know what I'm talking about, you realize that I'm talking. I'm saying the same thing. I'm just I'm just expressing it to you in different words. Remember the guy who said, "I'll look after you, and you look after me." Yeah. And what was the response? No. Let me look after myself for you, and you look after yourself for me. Right. This is what we do uh, on our path on Nibbana. We service ourselves for the benefit of others. We improve ourselves for the benefit of others. We develop ourselves for the benefit of others. We heal ourselves for the benefit of others. Not we go around healing others. Not we go around developing others. But of course, it will say, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a fine old saying, yeah, in the service of others, we help ourselves, right? No one becomes great, or people become great by helping others stand up, or rise, rise up. Right? These are these are you know really good good sayings, but and that is true. So how is that and this? Is that one and the same? Are they different? You might ask. You can't help another person unless and until you are in a position to be able to help them. So. What you do is, you look at the bigger picture. You realize that I have to help all these people, and to help them, I have to make sure that I am helped. So where do you start your helping? Yeah, but for whom? For all. That's the mindset. Look at what Guru Hanru does. Fine example of that. Right, you know, if he wanted to attain Ibana and, does it, and do it just for himself, right, he wouldn't have... He wouldn't have had to do all this. And I'll have you know that you know, his original idea was to isolate and, take, and get himself into, a <clears throat> into some, some kind of isolation and in, into a forest somewhere. And you know, that was his original plan. But all that changed because he realized that that is not his purpose. That is not his purpose of, of having come into this world. But today what he does is, you know, he looks at he studies what's going on around. He looks at all the people that comes to him looking for help and support and guidance. He looks at all the people who looks for his benevolence. And he develops himself. You know, he's learning Hindi. Now he's started learning Telugu. Right? Before long, he'll start another language. I think by the time he's, he's gone, he'll probably be speaking 10 or 15 languages, if I'm not mistaken. 
Yeah, more than that, I, I, I imagine. He's already honed two or three, so... Because he feels, you know, what he says is, see, he's working on himself for others. He's working on himself for others. Not working on others for yourself. Working on yourself for others. So if you really love yourself, then you will start working on yourself. You'll improve yourself. But ask why? Because un until and unless I do that, I can't help all. So one for all. So try and engineer your lives and design your lives in that way. And the more you start thinking about the other people who need their help, oftentimes, you know, from where I'm sat in the Kuti, I see that mountain range far and far, far away. That's just where those, the, the, the mountain range touches the, uh, the sky and that's the horizon. And so from time to time when young people come and they talk to me and they say, you know, I need some motivation, I need some inspiration, Swami. I say, look at those, can you see those mountain range over there? That's where I look at from time to time. He says, why do you look there? Because I said, beyond those mountains, there are many scores of people who've never even seen me or heard me. They've never seen the Buddha. That's why they're on that side of the mountain. Because if they had, where would they be? On this side of the mountain, as you are. So there are many, many, many people out there. And no matter how how much I call out and ask them to come, they're not going to hear me because they're on the other side of the mountain. Sound doesn't travel to the other side of the mountain. So there's only one way I can reach them. I've got to take myself over to the mountains and then climb the mountain and then call out to them. That's the time when they're going to hear me. So if I want to help all those people on the other side of the mountain, then there's no point me staying here expecting that they will arrive one day. I have to go there and I have to talk to them. I've got to take myself where they can hear me. Isn't that motivation and inspiration enough for you, Buddha? All those people who are suffering out there, you just think about yourselves, folks, for a second. Just think about how much you found peace over the last few years. Hmm? How much peace have you really found over the last few years? Think about it. How much are you at peace with yourselves? Those days, you know, there was, there was still that you, you know, when no one was watching, and you didn't know how to, how to tame them. You didn't know how to tackle them. You didn't know how to deal with them because they were out of control. Weren't they? Like a drunken ox, weren't they? Right. <clears throat> Whenever they wanted something, you just went after it. Whenever they felt like something was in, getting in their way of something, you know, you just, you just got in the way and said, right, I'm going to destroy whatever stands in my way to happiness and I'm going to go and get it. Look at the things that it made you do. Think about all the regrets that you have in your life, the things that you wish never happened. All the events in your life which, if you were given the opportunity, you would go back and erase. Think about it for a second. 
You know, those, they, they, they burdened you. Isn't that why you came here in the first place? That they were, you know, because there were chapters in your life which you chose to ignore. You, the chapters in your life which you despised reading over. There were so many stories that you had that you would never have shared with your parents, your children, your, your spouses. You know, those were the parts of your life that you really disliked. And there were time and time again you wished, oh, how I wish those things never happened. And how I wish today that I can learn to be at peace with it, but I can't. I struggle. So you came here. That's why I came here. That's our, our story. That's why I came here. I came here to learn to love myself. That's why I came to the Sarsan. To learn to love myself truly, dearly, and genuinely. Today you love yourself. Far, far, far more than you used to. Today you acknowledge your weaknesses, your flaws, your shortcomings. Because you know, you know it, it is a flaw. That is what it is. it is. That is all it is. Today, the Dhamma has helped you to recognize, to identify a flaw as something that you can put on the analytical table and stand back and look at it and go, all right, okay, so we have a problem to solve. You're learning to not identify yourself with the flow. So now you're at peace with it. This is what the Dhamma has done for you, meaning you've actually learned to love yourself. Don't you love yourself more than you used to? Of course. So the more you, le- you learn to love yourself, the more you, are, you, are, you have become compassionate towards yourself and, and you are emanating loving kindness. You are, you are now able to spread that out far and wide and help other people do the same. You know, no one's got problems with others. You hear that, right? No one's got problems with others. Everyone's got problems with themselves. No one's ever suffered because of a problem they've had with somebody else. Right, tell me who said this. This is a quote. Hmm? I've always suffered because of problems I've had with others. Who said that? No one. I've only suffered because of problems I've had with myself. Who said that? Everyone. When you feel angry, do you really think it's a problem you have with somebody else? Hmm? When you're annoyed, Is that a problem you have with somebody else? No. You know that resenting feeling when you feel angry? I just, you you know, you don't remember being angry now? You do? Good. Okay. Otherwise, we can't do this practical experiment, right? Remember the last time you, you were angry, right? When you feel anger, you, you recognize that uncomfortable feeling this, that we label anger, anger right? This, this really uncomfortable feeling on the inside. You, 
it's like a it's like a volcano about to erupt you know that something's bubbling up inside it's just you know that feeling right anger yeah anger is an expression of you struggling to conform to a different state of mind that is what anger is so there's a present state of mind there's a different state of mind that you need or you have to get to now because the situation and the circumstances demand that but you're struggling to do that say for instance you go shopping on a saturday okay but this saturday is not going to work out Oh, no, we can't use that because Saturday is your Nibbana day, right? Oh, God. Ah, all right. Let's do it the other way around. Saturday is your Nibbana day. Right? And Sunday is your shopping day. So, but on Sunday, something else has to happen. Right? Something's come up and you can't go shopping on Sunday now. so the only choice left is a saturday now your current state of mind is saturday is my nibbana day so you have to go to the monastery on saturday right so now say your husband or your wife comes up to you and says right honey no can do this weekend we're going to have to go shopping on saturday now you've just been presented with a different state of mind a different state you're not there yet mentally but a different state has just been presented to you an alternative state now you know that alternative state doesn't make is not the reason for anger because if it were then everyone has to be angry with going shopping on saturday so then they'll have to have supermarkets should close on saturdays because <laughs> everyone no one likes going shopping on on saturdays that's not the that's not the case right but your state of mind is saturday is my nibbana day it's not the day i go shopping now there's uh what do you call it there's a there's a potential difference there's a potential difference like you know when you have a current right there's a there's a difference in potential so that potential difference now has to be reconciled So now you have to change. I'm just giving you a very simple example and I want you to start thinking about what was the situation with me last time that happened to me. Like something or the other makes you angry. Hmm? What was that thing that made me angry? Maybe someone, you know, sat in your bed. Or maybe someone you know untidied your bed and that's not how you left it. Maybe someone didn't do the dishes maybe someone uh you know maybe didn't didn't someone used your used your mug and they hadn't washed it maybe someone didn't sweep the the room maybe someone didn't close the door or lock the gate whatever or maybe someone didn't give you the right change hmm? all sorts of things can happen maybe someone stepped on your foot maybe someone bumped into you and didn't didn't apologize 
Maybe it was the dog. Right? So whatever it is, you have a, a, a state of mind which you have decided this is the vipaka that I like. Right? This my state of mind conforms with this vipaka. Right? And this is what I want, this is what I like, this is what gives me pleasure. <clears throat> so you have really isolated a configuration of vipaka as, as one that you are at peace with. Now there's an alternative state. That state itself does not cause pain because there are plenty of people in this world who are in that state of mind. It's just you who has a problem with that. So the time it takes you to switch from this state of mind to that state of mind is the time that you're going to be angry. Meaning, the time it takes you, that, that potential jump that you need to make from this state to that state is the duration you're going to experience that uncomfortable feeling of anger. Why am I talking about anger? Peace? Loving yourself? Where did we, how did we come into this? Ah, who cares? <clears throat> so, when you, when you, so you need to learn to love yourself. Ah, I was saying, you know, people never had problems with others. Yeah, all the time we only had problems with ourselves, right? So you see, if there are two states, and one state of mind is, is the one you're in, and the other state of mind is the one that is the potential, there's a potential difference between yours and that, that is when you have a problem. It's not the state itself, but the fact that you are not there yet. And the situation demands that you have to make that jump. Isn't that when the problem is? If the situation didn't demand it, then you're all right. Hmm? If circumstances didn't demand that, you have to change, then you're okay. No one's angry then. But the situation, the circumstances demand that you change, but you're not ready to change. That friction, that resistance, and the duration through which you're going to go through that change is that time where you're going to experience anger. And it might even be that at one point you make that switch and then from there on, switching back is going to make you angry again. Yes or no? So you decide, all right, all right, fine, then let's go shopping on Saturday. Hmm? Right, fine. Saturday is my shopping day. I'll listen to the sermon online. So from today on, so I'll do that on a Sunday. Hmm? Right, fine. So now you've decided that, you've settled on that, and then you know, three weeks later they say, you know what, I, I think I, we should go shopping on Sunday. Don't like Saturday shopping anymore. What? Never happened? Where you've made this jump, and then someone says, now you've got to jump back. Hmm? When Simon said jump. Never happened in your life where you, you had to change yourself to, to, to adjust to a different situation, a different arrangement, right? And then you were asked to change back. See, the very situation that you were in, the thing that you liked, now you don't like. Because that is why I explained to you that you know, this feeling of anger is that potential difference. It's, not, it's neither of the states. It's neither here nor there that you have the problem. The problem is the difference that you have to change. See, that's where the problem is. You like this today, 
I say stop, stop using red. I want to start using blue. Hmm? You like this, you like red. I say no, stop using red, start using blue. Oh, fine then. But red is your favorite color. Hmm? But now, see, see, this is what you like, this is what you've been asked to like, this is what is demanded of you. Now, while you make that switch, that duration of time, it's like Meena Rashi, Mesha Rashi, you know, during that, that period where you make that jump, that is the inauspicious time. It is during that time you feel this experience anger, right? But at some point you're going to make that jump. Let's imagine at some point you make that jump. Now again there's a potential difference between that and that. Now if they ask you to jump back, again there's going to be resentment. Why? Because it's neither this state nor that state that causes you anger. It's this difference. It's that gap. So these are things to recognize. And again, as I said, first identify who you are, you know, the, when, who you are when no one's watching, then acknowledge that. Uh, and then after that, learn to show them compassion and loving kindness and, you know, and, and slowly help them up. Right, now I want to be faithful to my words, so I'll extend what we've been talking about so far to explain to you what I promised you. <clears throat> so I think what I wanted to explain to you was last week we had the Dakineyu, almsgiving to a hundred monks at our monastery. And I wanted to explain to you why it is that it matters. Two things matter, really. Who you make the offering to and who you are when you make that offering. These are the two things that matter. The offering itself matters nothing. It does not matter at all. What matters is who you offer to and who you are when you offer. <clears throat> so if you asked, I'll ask you this question, right? So this is not a virtual. You can, I think you'll have an answer to this pretty straightforward. Which one is more meritorious? Offering um, a 10 course meal or offering a jam sandwich? Which one's more meritorious? Hmm? Of course. Because there is no merit in a five course meal and there is no merit in a jam sandwich. The merit is not one of the ingredients when you make a sandwich. Right? So it's not there in that. Merit, we need to understand merits. It's very important that we understand merits. 
Why, why is it important that we understand something? Of course, well done, well said. When we understand something, we can do it correctly. That's why we go to school, that's why we learn science, that's why we learn math, whatever. That's why we learn to cook, so we can do it correctly. As I learned. There was a time when I couldn't eat my own cooking. Ah. University life taught me how to cook. And university life gave me plenty of stomach aches as well before I learned to cook. But that's a discussion for another day. So what we need to understand, why we need to understand merits is because once we understand it, we can do it correctly. I know for a fact that you all put in a lot of time and effort to devise creative, imaginative ways of doing merits and you really exert yourself. Sometimes you spend a lot of money. But merit is not in money. Merit is not in the thing that you give. It's not in this. So, offering this to the Swami Nuhansi does not earn you any merits at all. This itself. So if you had a robot, for instance, who would come and offer this to the Swami Nuhansi, no merits would be earned because this itself has no merits. See, there isn't any. Otherwise, if you, you know, if you were to eat this. Ah, that's a good point, actually. You know, if merit was in the food that you, <laughs> that you offered, right? Eating lots of it should give you what? Huh? Make you very meritorious, right? That's a fantastic point. So then all the monks in... <laughs> around the world should be very meritorious because they consume all the food that they give and you know people in the hotels animals should be very merit very meritorious <clears throat> an elephant should be very meritorious because all they do is eat all day long <clears throat> so it's not in the food so it's not in the thing that you offer let's say imagine you offer a kuti it's not in the kuti you offer a bar of soap it's not in the soap it's not in any of the things that you offer. So let's get that straight first. So then how do we earn merits? When you talk about the subject of merits, there are two aspects, as I briefly mentioned earlier. Who's receiving it and who's giving it. <clears throat> so we call this the Vipaka party and the Karma party. Who's receiving it is the Vipaka party. I'll use those words because deeds and results doesn't really make a lot of sense when we're talking about this, okay? And we all understand what Vipaka is. Right? Vipaka are the fruits of the karmas, which are the deeds. Yeah. Something like that. So the Vipaka party is the who receives it. The karma party is who you are when you give it or do it. So what's happening on the inside and what's happening on the outside. <clears throat> now, there's hardly anything you can really do to control 
who's receiving it on the outside i mean you have some control over it but not a great deal and the reason for that is when we talk about this what is it about that party like what is it about that party we are talking about here it's about how pure it is because after all you know this is all just energy and so i'm i'm, I'm trying to give you a three dimensional exposition of how merits work but merits are a very two dimensional thing right because in when you when we go switch into the three dimensional perspective you know we 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 switch off from talking about merits and uh, and demerits what really remains after all is just you know give and you shall get is that is that principle and you'll have to you'll have to stop thinking about it in terms of who's giving and who's getting because the who's completely drop out of the picture when we start talking about the three dimensional perspective but bear with me and you'll understand what i'm trying to show you here so the vipaka party and the karma party these are the two parties that are involved in a meritorious deed or an unmeritorious deed i'm going to talk about merits just for now it's about how pure it is that makes the difference how pure it is so what are the things that defiles this energy three things the buddha has named desire aversion and delusion so these are the defilements defilements defile pure energy that is why they call defilements they defile they defile pure energy they defile something that is pure so what is out there is energy and pure energy is defiled by desire aversion and delusion things that only the mind can do nothing else can do desire aversion and delusion it's all mental these are mental creations and of course you know that desire aversion and delusion are all based in ignorance and attachment right so therefore when we ask the question what determines how much something is pure or this energy is pure you can give the very short and simple answer the absence or presence of ignorance and attachment because ignorance and attachment lead to the rise of desire aversion and delusion their absence makes something impure so i beg your pardon their presence makes something impure and their absence makes something pure what is this something i'm talking about energy here why because i'm giving you a three dimensional perspective on merits so here we're talking about energy if i was switched down to a two dimensional perspective i'd i'd be saying you know parents and teachers and elders and you know poor people and and you know helpless people right and you be a good person and that person this person that is that would be a two dimensional exposition <clears throat> so now let's get into the nitty gritty of this let's take for a second who we might identify as i'll start with the say the buddha okay now i think you've been enough sermons to know by now that who is the buddha is the wrong question to ask because the buddha is not a who if the buddha were a who then this is simply what 
clay. Yeah, this is simply bricks and mortar and clay. That's all this is. If the Buddha were a who, but the Buddha is a what. Because the Buddha is a what, this statue now has significance. That is why you see the Swami Nuhanse going and worshipping by the statue. Because the Buddha is not a who. Because that is not the Buddha. Let's be honest. We, you know, we all know that he passed away two and a half thousand years ago. And if the Buddha passed away two and a half millennia ago, then that certainly cannot be the Buddha. So then why do we go and worship? Because the Buddha is not a who. The Buddha is what? <clears throat> so what is Buddha? Buddha is purity. Is purity. The level to which pureness can be achieved, whereby there is absolutely no defilements, none whatsoever. It's pure as pure can be. Now we start talking about Buddha. This is enlightenment, awakening. Okay? And you can also think of it as a comprehension or understanding. But when you talk about energy, right, that is pure energy, undefiled energy. Now, that's the, that's the Vipaka party. So now let's just talk quickly about the Karma party. So let's say it so happened that you had the opportunity, you have the opportunity to go and make an offering to a Buddha. Okay? When you go make an offering to a Buddha, Whatever offering it is that you make, now does what the offering itself matter? Is there merits in what you offer? No. Remember, merits are not determined by what you offer. Merits are determined by how pure the receiving part is and how pure the giving part is. These are the two factors that determine that, not the object that you offer. So let's get that straight. So one might ask then, should I just you know give them a, a handful of, you know what? Sand? You could, if you really wanted to, but it's not going to be of much use. I mean, you know, you, there's, there's a fine line between being intelligent, wise, and being a hypocrite. Right? Having lots of wisdom and not sraddha, and no sraddha makes you a complete hypocrite. It, it makes you, you know, it, it takes out the humanness about you. Shraddha, Viri, Sati, Samadhi, Pragna, these are the five faculties that we all need in our quest for Nibbana. So it's not enough just to have lots of Pragna and absolutely no Shraddha. Shraddha is important. So therefore, if you see a poor man, right, or see a, a beggar, right, you're not going to walk and think, right, you know, it, Swami Nasa said, it doesn't matter what you offer, but I'm just going to give them a very small part of what I have. I, I can give a lot, but it doesn't matter. What I give, the quantity doesn't matter, is what Swami Nuhansa said, because it's not in the object. So then I'm just going to give them a very small part. There you go. And I've got all the merits I wanted. It doesn't work like that. I'll tell you why it doesn't work like that. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you why it doesn't work like that. Because, you know, people might start to get into that false notion, right? If, if merit is not in the object, right? Let's say two friends go for, go for uh, you know, go for a meal. And you have one dish, right? And you think, I want to do some merits. 
if merit is not in the object, then therefore it's not determined by the quantity. Therefore, I'll take all of it and give him a handful. Think about why that doesn't work. Yeah, exactly, because you're not pure. You know, if you really, honestly, if you honestly ask yourself, right, the guy who, when no one's watching, right, if you ask that person, you know, why is it that you just gave a handful and why did you keep the rest for yourself? Now you have the answer to that question. At least you could have gone half and half at, at, at the very least. But no, you thought, well, you know, I like this. I like this. Therefore, I'm going to keep as much of it as I can for myself and just give the bare minimum. Meaning, you're not pure. That is why it doesn't give you a lot of merit. That's why, you know, some, it, it, perhaps it might be that someone gives, you know, a, a huge meal or a feast as an offering. And then you see a poor man, you know, maybe gives a, he, all he has is a, is a slice of bread. And when that is, that is also offered to him by somebody, he sees another fellow beggar by the street and he says, can I give you half? How come that earns more merits than someone giving a feast? Because it is not determined by what you give, but it's determined by how pure. This is volition. This is intention. Therefore, this is karma. See, the Buddha says, volition is karma. Intention is karma, right? In other words, how pure that intention is. The more that intention is doused in desire, aversion and delusion and therefore in ignorance and attachment and in therefore to preserve the self. By that much, this is an impure task, an impure deed and therefore the amount of merits that you earn are determined by that. So let's go back to making that offering to the Buddha. <clears throat> so in the Vipaka party, this is probably as pure, can, pure can, as pure as pure can be because you have a Samma Sambuddha to whom you are now making this offering. And on your side, does it matter what you are going to offer him? Hmm? Whether it's a, a bowl of rice or a grain of, a grain of rice, does it matter? No, it doesn't matter. What matters is how pure you are here. Now, how do we design pure here? The same way we define pure anywhere when we're talking about energy, mind energy. Mind energy is made impure by what again? Desire, aversion, and delusion. These are the three defilements. So you see, when you begin to practice the Dhamma, you begin to understand that all things that were done before your understanding of the Dhamma were done to preserve, support, and nourish this hoax that was the self. It was a hoax, complete hoax. It was a falsehood. Yeah? Anytime you acted with desire, anytime you acted with anger, aversion, anytime you tried to measure yourself against others, right? it was always a time where you were dealing with the self and trying to position it against the other selves that you thought were out there, but none of them were out there. You just thought they were there. So all those efforts were an effort to sustain, maintain, preserve, and nourish this hoax. People hate to be fooled, don't they? That's one of the worst things that you can do to someone. 
right? People don't like to be cheated on and they don't like to be fooled. But the irony of it is, you don't like it when your best friend cheats you, cheats on you, right? You don't like it. How about when you cheat yourself? That seems to be okay. Throughout sansara, you have been fooled to thinking that there's a self that you have and that self is what you need to nourish and preserve. And for that purpose, you have done all things, but they were all based in desire, aversion, delusion, because desire, aversion and delusion has no place. They have no place where there is nothing for them to achieve. Think about why desire, aversion and delusion exist. Those words are too long, so I'm just going to say D-A-D, okay? Yeah. Think about why D-A-D exists. They are there for a purpose. That purpose is to nourish the self. That's why they exist. They are there to separate. What does desire do? Natirago samannagi. There's no fire like desire. What does fire do? It consumes. It consumes. Desire is a device that you can use to separate. Now think carefully about what I'm trying to explain to you here. I've not explained this to you in, this, in these terms before, so I want you to open your minds and think about what I'm trying to explain to you here. Desire is a device that helps you to separate. See, what does desire make you feel? That you want things, right? Desire is when you desire things. Meaning, you want to be their sire. The sire. You're the sire. What is the sire? Sire is the king. right? When you want to feel king, when you want to feel the owner. Owner kena? When you want to feel the owner. When you want to feel the sire. Right? That's when you desire. So you want something to be yours. So therefore this is a device to separate things for yourself. For your self. So now do you not see that where there is no self, there is no place for desire? Because why separate? For whom? The question will come. Can I have? Can, can we put aside some? Come on. You're going to have to answer that question. For whom? You have, an, you have an answer. For whom? For this guy. For that guy. Whoever. Yeah, for the self. So that's where desire is. Now think about aversion for a second. See, again, we talked about what aversion was a moment ago. Hmm? So that was a nice segue into this. Aversion is where you have a state of mind and there's another state of mind that the situation demands, circumstances demand, and now you need to make that switch. Right? And that switch becomes uncomfortable. That switch is that potential gap that you need to jump. right? But you have a resistance. Why is there resistance? Because that is not what the self likes. So therefore you try and avoid making that jump as much as you possibly can. With desire, you try and make things yours. With aversion, you try and avoid things which don't bring you happiness, which, don't, which you don't like, which don't comply with who you feel you are. So again, where there is no self, 
there is no room, there is no place for aversion. And then you have delusion, good old delusion. Hmm? The trickier one. It's the trickiest of them all. Because delusion is always there. Behind desire delusions there, behind aversion delusions there. Delusion is what gives you the illusion of self. Wherever there's delusion, you, are, you have the illusion of a self. And therefore now, that self has to be placed somewhere. Right? Whenever there is something, you have to place it somewhere, right? Whenever there is something, you have to place it somewhere. The only time you don't have to place something is where there is no something. Yeah. So everything in this world is equal. Everything in the universe is equal. Which one's better? Light energy or heat energy? Tell me that. Which energy is better? There's no answer to that because light energy can be converted to heat energy and heat energy can be converted to light energy. So therefore, they're one and the same. Just a different configuration. But when you feel that you are a separate entity, when you feel this illusion that there's a separate personality, a separate entity, a separatedness, now that has to be placed in relation and in, you know, either above, below, or at the same level as another one of those. This is the illusion that delusion creates. And once you have this position that has to be determined by this illusion of self. Now, if you place it in one place, right? That's why now you can understand why delu why delusion is the undertone of both desire and aversion. Because when you have to place this somewhere, if you get to place it somewhere nice, right? You need to you need to you need somewhere to park this, as Guru Tero says, right? If you have a car, you're you're a driver, you have you need a car park, right? So if you have a separatedness that you experience. You have this self that you that you have to nourish. Now, there are there are there are there are pastures which you like, and there are pastures you want to avoid. Meaning, in other words, where you park this thing, where you position this thing, where you where you place this thing. What is this thing I talk about? This this feeling of self, this perception of self. So, therefore, underlying both desire and aversion, there is delusion. So desire, aversion, and delusion, none of them have any place where there is no self. So where there is no self, all there is is pure energy. That is why when there is this, the perception of a self, and therefore desire, aversion, and delusion, which come running to nourish that, that energy is impure and therefore the amount of merits, the quantity of merits that can be accrued by engaging with that mindset is also diminished. Answer this question for a second. How much interest does money that you have in your pocket earn you in a bank that pays the highest amount of interest? Money's in your pocket. There's a bank which pays the highest amount of interest, but money's in your pocket. How much interest do you earn for that money? None. 
right? Because the money is with you. You got to invest. You got to deposit before they start paying you interest. This is what happens. Remember, I told you, I spoke with you a moment ago. Uh, the arahant is not someone who captures. The arahant is not someone who retains. What you put in is what you get out. True genuineness, right? But where there is desire, aversion, and delusion, these three are the devices that help to sustain and nourish the self. And then therefore, when there is a self, there's always parts of this energy that it wants to harbor for itself. Now this is where karma starts to happen. See, energy is universal. Energy is for all, like the air we breathe, like the water that we drink. It's for all. It's like food. It's like the ground. It's like earth. It's for all. It's not separate for each and every one. So energy, vipaka is like that. It's for all. Because they're also vipaka. You know, sunlight is vipaka. Not the bar, so light. Right? The oxygen we breathe is vipaka. The water we drink is vipaka. This is all vipaka. But you see, what happens when ignorance and attachment creeps in, people separate it for themselves. Vipaka energy works in the same way. Vipaka is for all. It's not for one. But what happens is, when ignorance and attachment comes in, and then self comes in, now, desire is one of the devices that is there to nourish the self, so therefore, whatever it likes, it has to creep for itself. There are certain vipakas it will want to keep for itself. So when that vipaka comes, the mind goes into action. Desire gets, in, gets working and starts to capture that energy for itself. Do you understand what I'm trying to express? Yeah. Right. Desire starts to capture the energy that is for all, for itself. The energy is universal, it belongs to all, but what desire does it, it captures it for itself. This is craving. Aversion does the same, because wherever there is aversion, it is simply the potential difference between what you desire and what the current situation demands. So even when you're angry about something, you're still thinking about what you like, right? That's why, that is how one can be made angry. If I give you this, you don't like it, then I can ask you the question, well, what do you like then? So you always have the answer, I like this. Meaning, even when you don't like something, you're still desiring something. So again, you're capturing. And when we talk about illusion, which is always, you know, the underlying energy, or the underlying force between desire and aversion. Now, this is quite technical, but I'm trying to give you a, an explanation as to why, how merits work from a three-dimensional perspective. If, not, if this, this doesn't make sense, ignore all this and just carry on doing merits. <laughs> I keep calm and just doing merits. Okay, but I'm just trying to explain to you for my benefit, and and if, in case it makes you happy as well, right? How, why merits have such a big place, and 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 why the Buddha sasana is the best place to be earning merits, right? If you understand that, why do we understand? Why do we try and make an effort to learn anything? So we can do it correctly. Now you work hard, you, you toil, you labor trying to do some of the, you know, I've seen how 
you carry those mutukudu <clears throat> those umbrellas right you give shelter to the swami nonsense and you are in the sun hmm? so you are making a sacrifice there or when perhaps you know you are washing the feet of the monks as they enter the dhamma hall right the swami nonsense only has to be stood there for 2 or 3 seconds but you're there washing the feet of 100 monks out in the scorching sun so you know i see how much you 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 put yourself through to en- to engage in those merits maybe cooking a meal maybe uh, you know offering the dana maybe washing the the arms bowls uh, maybe washing the toilets you know i know because we have a water shortage these days right we've asked our devotees to refrain from washing those toilets but you know usually on a saturday i think they get washed like <laughs> every time someone goes to the toilet the, the entire facility gets washed that's how much our devotees you know are committed to to earning merits in the name of the sasana right that's that's a lot of work you know i i don't believe in work for the sake of work i believe in work for the sake of results other is just work you know what's the point of just work work is just energy expended if you don't get anything back for it it's just energy expended efficiency zero we don't do like that we want to get the most out of the energy that we spend so therefore when i see all of you working hard i trying to do as much merits as you can you know those the other day i got the opportunity to pack some of those mutukudas into the bags that were there to to keep it safe for the next week i and the the amount of time that you must have put to put in those sequence right one after the other someone told me that there was one person who prepared this mutukuda and i think and i saw that like wow how many sequence are there on this and there were like so many pebbles and so on each sequence or each pebble that attached to it chanting budguna each and every one of them it must have taken this man or woman at least 3 weeks to prepare that by my guess so all that time put into it and all that effort you know all that that focus to doing that because you know it's not like a sequence is this big right there's this tiny little things and you 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 put gum on one and attach it and by the time you take the next one what happened to the last one it's it's back on the floor right so it's a very laborious task so i want you to earn as much merits out of it because you're already putting in the time so that's what i'm trying to explain to you here how it works because when you understand this then now you're wise you're you're full of wisdom about it you can do it insightfully right now coming back to the point i was trying to say ignorance attachment are the driving force behind desire aversion and delusion and all three three of these defilements are there because you have to nourish the self right so i asked you the question how much interest does money that is in your pocket earn at the bank that gives you the best interest rates zero you have a thousand bucks you deposit 500 and 500 is in your pocket what do you earn interest for the 500 that you put in right and the other 500 in your pocket you earn nothing the same concept applies here whatever and by how much you give by that much you get now let me explain what i mean by that whenever there is a self there is a separation meaning there's a capturing going on you want to capture it for yourself whatever you capture you don't release fair enough yeah whatever you capture you don't release whatever you release 
you free it's it's gone meaning it you are, you give the opportunity to go and start earning interest if you had a thousand and you only gave away 500 that 500 that's in your pocket earns you nothing in the same way whatever you capture from the vipaka that comes your way that vipaka earns you nothing it's just captured energy but the but what you give out is what goes and gets invested in the vipaka party and that's what you get back so whatever you give that much you get now let's take a simple example <clears throat> let's take the buddha again so there's a buddha and you want to make an alms giving to the buddha right an alms offering i'm going to take the example of a prutakjana someone who has no understanding of the dhamma okay for them there is nothing bigger than and better than who themselves they don't see what the buddha is they see who the buddha is in other words for them the buddha is a person and actually they have not really seen the buddha because if they are a prutakjana they haven't understood the dhamma but they think that the buddha is a nice guy he's a nice guy you know he doesn't harm anyone doesn't hurt anyone probably like the you know better version of mahatma gandhi you know that's that's how people would think right so so he's a nice guy so if he's a nice guy i want to, i want i want to help him i want to give him something he must be hungry so maybe i'll give him a meal you know just maybe help him out a little bit uh and it makes me happy doing so it makes me really happy doing that So when you say it makes me happy doing that that diminishes some of the merit power because you're doing it for your happiness yes you're doing it for your happiness whatever energy you capture for yourself you cannot give away therefore there is no opportunity for that energy to go and be complemented by the purity of the vipaka party on the other side so imagine the buddha in our analogy is the bank account which gives you that great amount of interest yeah if you keep a portion of that for yourself and saying this is the part that makes me happy so i do it because it makes me happy right you can only give away some of it because whenever there is something that makes you happy there's going to be a line if you cross that threshold it's going to then make you unhappy simple science right this is simple logic if there's something that makes you happy there's always going to be something that makes you unhappy so you need to you have a line that you draw so say for instance if you make that offering to the buddha and the buddha says now you know what i don't want any more today oh don't say that when mahaprajapati the queen had she came to offer that robe that she'd worn i put in her hard work and labor and she wanted to offer it to whom she wanted to offer it to the buddha yeah think about that story for a second you all know the story i'm just reminding you right when when she came and said i want to offer this to the supreme buddha she met ananda thero and the ananda thero said right i'll go and convey the message to the buddha and when the buddha was received the message what did the buddha say no i don't want to accept that imagine ananda thero having to go and <laughs> convey that message back to 
the you know the the, the queen your majesty unfortunately you know the buddha does not accept your offer i mean we know mahaprajapati as being you know such a benevolent queen so you know her reactions wouldn't have been quite the same as what i what i make it out to be but you know for anyone else you know joe would have dropped like somewhere here i i fed him hmm? i looked after him when his mother wasn't there i was the mother who looked after him and he refuses my offering what she didn't say that this is my version of it <laughs> mahapajapati is offering in the 21st century uh, this is my version of it right like a parody of it <laughs> right but you know then the anandathera goes back to the buddha and says venerable sir please don't do that you know do you, you must have more kindness and compassion towards your you know your stepmother please would you kindly accept the offering no ananda i'm not going to offer i'm not going to accept it and then again you know on, on repetitive request the buddha says what it is because i understand how much of a sacrifice she made that i don't accept it and instead i want her to make that offering to the mahasangha because the mahasangha includes myself but not only me all all minds engaged in the effort of freeing themselves from the impurities that defile mental energy now mahaprajapati the queen she didn't understand this at least not to the extent that the buddha does no one does so she didn't understand it. not having understood this she was insistent that it had to be made to the buddha because you see in her mind there was a buddha there was a buddha so if we asked her who's the buddha he would have she would have pointed a finger and said see that's the buddha that's who i want this offering to be made to <clears throat> but now for someone who understands the dhamma for someone who understands anicca dukkha anatta the reality the truth they begin to understand that the buddha is not a person the buddha is a state it's a state of mind it's awakening it's enlightenment it's freedom it's peace it's compassion it's loving kindness it's equanimity that's what buddha is so it's not a person then it's everything but a person it's everything but a person so then it matters not who physically receives this offering then she would not have insisted on even making that offering to a to a you know to a to a person to a human being she could have left it somewhere in fact she didn't even need to bring it to the monastery see that's why you can make offerings at home you can offer flowers at home you don't have to bring it to the temple do you if you like if you if you put flowers on a on a on a dish and leave it at home right or a flower vase and leave it at home and bring it to the temple difference in merits any none whatsoever the buddha puja that you do at home and the buddha puja you do at the monastery any difference in merits none whatsoever provided you are pure that is why in the buddha's discourse right, we talked about this on thursday to our aminohanses and the anagarikas and anagarikas in the buddha's discourse there's one called the dakkina vibhanga sutta where he details 
he gives a, an analytical exposition on the, the on charity on dana um, giving right making offerings and there he describes how it is far more fruitful and far more rewarding to make an offering to a human being than it is to make an offering to an animal now the answer should come to you why it is because that is determined by the vipaka party how pure that mind is free from desire aversion and delusion because it is the vipaka party and the karma party together that complement each other to give you the full quantity of merits that you earn like when you go to the bank right the bank's interest rate and the amount of money that you deposit together determine how much interest you're going to earn out of it it's not just the bank's interest rate and it's not just the amount of money that you're going to deposit these two factors have to work together right so they are complementary and it's the same concept there so then the buddha says it is far more fruitful and far more rewarding than to make it is far more fruitful and far more rewarding to make a single offering to someone who is virtuous than it is to make an offering to many many scores of human beings who are unvirtuous who are vile vicious and he goes on he says it is far more virtuous so far more fruitful far more rewarding to make an offering to one who's a who's an aspirant to becoming a sotapanna a sotapanna aspirant than it is to make an offering to a human being who is virtuous it is far more rewarding and far more fruitful to make an offering to one person who has attained the state of sotapanna than to make offerings to many people who are aspiring to become a sotapanna why on each occasion what happens what is this grading that the buddha is talking about purity indeed purity on the vipaka part in the vipaka party how pure the receiving part is on the vipaka party and there's another reason for that that i you know when i was reflecting on it you know that that dawned to me you see on the because one might ask why is it that that is the case you know how come it is more pure means more more merit and i think it's 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 something like this the purer it is on the vipaka party the more benefit that is to be gained by making that offering how so an animal takes what you offer it and hardly gives anything back because pretty much all if not most of it it retains for itself it might you know the, the cow might give the cow dung and maybe later on when it's gone it might give it's flesh but while it's alive it might give milk you know but i don't think the cow does it <laughs> intentionally and i've got some manure all the bucket it's coming <laughs> i don't think the cow does that right but that's why but then take a human being a human being who's so self-centered why are they so self-centered because they don't know any different right a human being that is self-centered will 
make use of anything that comes his way to nourish himself and nourish his self. Then what happens when you become, become a sotapanna? Now you begin to understand this self-business is a complete nonsense. Right? From here on, my quest and my purpose in life is not to nourish and foster the self, but rather to extinguish and exterminate this self, because that is what suffering is all about. And the more he does that, who else benefits? What is Nibbana again? What are we doing here? We love ourselves for others. Right? So a sotapanna person who loves himself now, he really understand what love, begins to understand what love is. He's the one who really understands what love is. He slash she, right? Understands what love is. Now begins to express that love. Exuberates that love to all sentient beings. Because it is only a sotapanna who can really do the Arimaitriya. We've talked about this in the past. Until then, any love that you, dis- you, you express is, is, is dirty love. That's not pure love. And then as you go on, you know, Sotapan uh, person and then a Sakrudagami aspirant and a Sakrudagami, uh, one who has attained the Sakrudagami state, and then an, an Anagami aspirant and one who has attained the Anagami state, and then you go on and go on and go on until you arrive to the Samma Sambuddhas. Right? Now, at this point, the Buddha says, there is one thing that is even more virtuous, or rather even more fruitful and even more rewarding than making an offering to a Supreme Buddha. Yes, and there's one more. He says it is the contemplation, yes, contemplation, reflection of anicca, dukkha and anatta. So before I continue with that, now is it clear to you why making offerings to the Sambuddha Sasana from the Vipaka party gains you a lot more than making an offering elsewhere? It is not because I'm a monk. There's a logic behind this. And I'm sure I'm, I'm, all I'm doing is plainly and simply explaining to you the logic behind it. You see, just because I'm clad like a monk doesn't mean that I'm part of the Sambuddha Sasana. This is just a robe. Anyone can don a robe and shave their head. My monkness is not in the clothes that I wear. It's in how pure I am and I'm trying to become by ridding myself of desire, aversion and delusion. Because the more I do that, the more selfless I become. The more selfless I become and the more whatever comes my way. See, that could be food, that could be shelter, that could be clothing, that could be medicines, right? that could be anything, that could be ayu, vitality, that could be varna, color, or health, sapa, comfort, bala, energy, patibana, wisdom. These, this is what we give for. All offerings, all gifts we make to the Sambuddha Sasana is to achieve this. Vitality, Energy, health, uh, comfort, and wisdom. This is the Panchanis answer, the five rewards of giving. Right? So when one continues their practice, the more and more they become selfless, the more and more they are able to make use of those in the service of others. That is why when you make an offering to a Buddha or even an Arahant, Right? There is nothing that they harbor for themselves. This is the concept, ladies and gentlemen. 
there is nothing that they harbor for themselves because with an arahant, you put in, you get out. So whatever are you, you put in, that much are you, you get out. Whatever varna you put in, that much you get out. Whatever sapa, bala, patibana, jnana, right? These are the five rewards. Whatever you put in, you get out by that much. Because they don't harbor anything for themselves. They don't keep anything for themselves. And therefore, the merit power is much greater than in giving to someone who uses them for their own nourishment and for their own sustenance because you've only really given to one person. Whereas when you give to, you know, if you fill a tank with water, right? imagine that if you fill a tank with water and you know that that tank is the tank that's going to supply the entire village, right? in filling that tank up, what have you also filled? The pots and pans and the glasses and the houses and the bellies of all of the people who live in that village, right? That's how it works. So you see, the bigger the benefit, the bigger the, 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 the potential to serve others, the bigger the merit that you get out of it. And this is why making offerings to the Sambuddhasasana gains you far more merits than making any offerings elsewhere. I'm simply explaining to you the logic. Please don't be narrow-minded and think that what Swami Nuhas is trying to do is to get you all to you know, put all your money into the Sambuddhasasana. That is not what I'm doing here. That is why I am making offerings to the Sambuddhasasana. Because the Sambuddhasasana is simply a representation of the extinguishment, the extermination of desire, aversion and delusion. That is what the Sambuddhasasana is. And it doesn't matter what religion or faith they are. It doesn't matter what creed, race or religion they are. That is not. Because that is not what determines what Sambuddhasasana is. Sang Buddha is what? The eradication of ignorance and attachment. That is what Sang Buddha means. It is the eradication of desire, aversion and delusion. That's what it is. And therefore becoming pure. And when you're pure, whatever comes, you give. You don't harbor anything for yourself. So that is how you become pure on the Vipaka party. And then when you look at the Karma party, which is the, your, your, your side of things, Remember the money that you put into the bank account is the only money that earns you interest, whereas the money you don't put in does not earn you any interest. So you see, whenever you have a self that you have to nurture, right, the amount that you're going to have to save and put aside for yourself, you don't give away, that you keep for yourself. So it does not have now the potential or the capacity to earn you any interest. This is why a Sotapanna earns far less merits than a Sakrudagami person making the same offering to the same individual. That is why an anagami person earns far more merits making the same offering to the same individual than a sakrudagami person or a sotapanna person or a prutagjana because they have less of a self and therefore they have less that they keep for themselves and more that they actually give out. What I'm talking about here is not what they physically give I'm talking about the transaction of energies that are happening here. And then ultimately when you come to the Anarahant, there is absolutely nothing that they keep for themselves. And they give everything away. What you give, what, what is given, is put out. Then there is no merits. At all. Because all is given. In other words, because nothing is harbored for themselves. You know, think of it this way. If an Arahant had the, had the capability to harbor, they would have been the ones who would have owned all of it. 
But what happens is, when the Arahant gives, because he gives it all, because he gives it all and doesn't hold anything back, doesn't hold anything back, it comes back to them, but they don't hold anything back. They don't hold anything back. Because what you give is what you get. But they don't hold anything back. So whatever is given, is given. And no energy is trapped. So therefore there is no karma. You know, the, the process of karma is really trapping of energy. That is what karma is from a three-dimensional explanation. Vipaka arises and passes away. So it comes and goes. Right? Yeah, uh, uh, the achitta is born and it passes away. But what karma is, part of that energy is trapped for later use. It is thrown back up and taken back again. So that energy is trapped. That is why my vipaka does not come to fruition to someone else here. Because that vipaka, vipaka is trapped. But what happens when vipaka is not trapped and it's free? Now vipaka does not belong to anybody. It doesn't belong to anyone. It's just vipaka. There are no individuals to whom vipaka belongs. Karma is simply the process of trapping that vipaka with the false hallucination, with the false view that it belongs to me, it is part of me, and therefore that trapping process happens. So if an arahant, now this is a completely hypothetical situation and it could never happen, it's, it's, you know, this is not possible at all. If an arahant could trap, if an arahant were interested in a self, you know, they would earn far more merits than any, anyone else. But, you know, clearly that has no grounding at all because an arahant does not trap. There's no self to, to preserve. So therefore, whatever comes their way, all of it is given out. But there is nothing that draws it back to them. So it's like, it's a bit like this, right? I'll give you this and then we'll conclude the talk for today. Imagine I had a ball in my hand and tied to a string and I held the string in my hand and I threw the ball Hmm? Now, the longer the string, the further I can throw it. Yeah? And imagine there were individuals along the way who were able to do something to the, to the ball as it passes them, as it passed them, right? Let's say, uh, you know, maybe color it some color. They all had a paintbrush in their hand, and as the ball flies past them, they, they, they color it, right? So the longer the string, the, the, the longer it can travel, the further it can travel, and the more people that it can touch, the more people it can serve, and so on. But because it's tied to me, it always comes back. Now an arahant is someone who does not have a string. They have the ball, and they throw it, but it doesn't come back. But along the way, does it not pass all those individuals the same? Aren't they all able to be served by it? Imagine there are people who see it and they're happy. They're elated to see this ball. Okay, I'm just giving an, an analogy here. Uh, they see the ball and they're really happy to see it. So does it not pass all the same people? Right? No less. But if I had a string and I wanted it back, then every time I throw it, I'm going gonna, gonna to pull it back to me. But another hand doesn't do that because he doesn't have anything to retain or to reserve for himself because there is no self for whom that needs to be reserved. But the energy with which it goes is the energy with which it comes. No reservations. No harboring. That's what happens. So this is why, from your perspective, right, from the karma party, 
it makes absolute and perfect sense to, as you do these meritorious deeds, contemplate on anicca, dukkha, and anatta. That is the Buddha's advice. The final thing he says in the sutta is, far more rewarding and fruitful than making an offering, a simple offering to a Buddha, is that one moment, half a moment, in which you contemplate on anicca, dukkha, and anatta. Because in that moment of reflection, folks, in that moment of reflection, ladies and gentlemen, you let go of that string. In that moment, you let go of that string. And as you let go of that string, that ball flies past, passing all those people, all those minds, who it can be of service to. Right? Nothing comes back because you don't pull it back. But isn't that what Nibbana is after all? That is why that is called the greatest reward and the greatest fruit. Whenever you hold it and you throw it, no matter how far you throw it, it's always attached to you and so it will have to come back to you. That is the concept. So whenever you engage in merits, try and divert those offerings. And by offerings, I don't necessarily mean anything physical. It can be, it can be your time, for instance. Right? If you, can, if you can invest that in the Sambuddha Sasana, what is the Sambuddha Sasana again? Monks and nuns, is it? No, it's not monks and nuns. Sambuddha Sasana is the effort, activity that is done to purify the mind from defilements. Where can it happen? In the temple? At the monastery? Can it not happen in the church? Can it not happen in the mosque? Can it not happen on the Sunday market? It can happen wherever and whenever. Purification of desire, aversion, and delusion can happen anywhere, provided the Dhamma is present. It's not something that is reserved for Buddhists, because the Dhamma does not belong to Buddhists. The Buddha doesn't belong to Buddhists. The Buddha is universal purity. <laughs> how, does that, how can that belong to anyone? When the Buddha came into the world to say that nothing belongs to anybody, huh? how can the Buddha belong to anyone? And so anyone who says that the Buddha is ours, don't you be saying anything to, the, to my Buddha. Huh? It is, someone who says that is someone who is a complete, a complete idiot. They have absolutely no understanding of what the Buddha came into this world to teach. The Buddha belongs to everyone. Jesus Christ belongs to everyone. The Prophet Muhammad belongs to everyone. Hmm? Lord Shiva belongs to everyone. Lord Ganesh belongs to everyone. Everything good belongs to everyone. Belongs to all. But what people do is they think it's no, it's me. Because this is the this is the this is the curse of this separation. Whenever there is separation, you want things to be mine. You want things to be mine. Even two children of the same mother will say, No, this is my mother. The other child, no, she's my mother. Hmm? You've never seen that? Yeah, children do that. Amma, who you, who do you love more? Me or Mali? See? Again, separation. But isn't that mother the same mother for both children? Separation, time and time again. All it brings is grief. So there you go. That's the explanation behind, the three-dimensional explanation behind merits and why it makes absolute sense to invest somewhere there's the Buddha Sasana. And while you invest it, make sure that Buddha Sasana is happening within you as well. Absolutely, yes.
you can't earn more merits than that until I, I suppose you can come to the uh, arihat marg right the, the arahant aspirant but then an anagami person is already an, an arahant aspirant uh, an arahant earns no merit right let's conclude the talk then for today because you have lots of merits to be doing now right <clears throat> okay so let us take a moment then to transfer the merits that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, chanting Pirit, listening to the Dhamma, and engaging in various meritorious deeds today. First and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching, and with immense gratitude, let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasikas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the Noble Lineage, in the form of the Sripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand, and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us transfer the merits we have all acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the Noble Path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits to Guru Swami Mahanse, as well as all the teachers resident at the monastery, Anagarikas and Anagarika communities attached to the monastery. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these talks, sharing them out with others, or inviting others to join them. And may, through the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May, through the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds. Fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer the merits we have acquired to our devotees, friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who contributed to the construction of the monastery, to those who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes, and medicines, as well as those who passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well wishes. May through the power of these merits they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us take a moment to transfer merits to our mothers, fathers, husbands, and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews, and nieces, our elders, friends, and acquaintances, employers, employees, and to all those who have helped, supported, and assisted us along the way. By the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to the devas and brahmas, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Samudasasana. Let us transfer merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may, through the power of these merits, they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us take a moment to transfer merits to our ancestors who have predeceased us, and to all those who have been families, friends, and acquaintances in this infinitely long journey in samsara, and to those who have helped, supported, and assisted us along the way. Let us transfer merits to the members of the armed forces, as well as the police force who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nations. And may all those who lost their lives in the war be their friend or foe, rejoice in the merits that we have acquired today. Let us transfer merits to all those who lost their lives in natural calamities such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides and pandemics. 
reminding ourselves and among them will be those who have been friends and family to us in this long journey. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits to them and may to the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us all resolve that may through the power and blessings of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land. And finally, may through the power of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day, you and I, and everyone who's helped make this program a success, become an arahatan vahanse, an arahatarinin vahanse, in this life itself, and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha. Sad, sad, sad. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all. And the members of the Mahasangha will now transfer their blessings to you. <clears throat>